Are you ready to overcome the complexities and burdens that come with your success? Join the team at Centura Wealth Advisory in the Live Life Liberated podcast. Now, on to the show. Hello, and welcome to the Live Life Liberated podcast. Today, we have Kyle Malmstrom and Roby Cockcamp. Hey, guys, how are we doing today? Hey, good afternoon. Good to be here. Fantastic, Wendy. Thanks yes, for having us. I'm Wendy McConnell, by the way. So uh, you guys, tell us what we're talking about. Yeah, so today we're going to be talking about the incomplete non-grantor trust, or an in-trust, as we'll refer to it frequently, state income tax strategy, where you're able to knock out a good portion of a state income tax bill for certain high-income taxpayers in a high-income tax state. So it's a pretty, pretty interesting strategy. I would agree that it is interesting. It is pretty heady. So we're going to try to keep it very high level today and make sure people understand where this could apply, how it applies, what are the benefits. Uh, and then there's been some recent regulation that we're going to talk about as it affects people in California and uh, make sure everyone is grounded and, and on the same page with what we need to do going forward. Yeah. Yeah. So you're going to want to stick around if you're in California. We've got some thoughts on some of the recent legislation. It'll be uh, probably useful. So before we do that, why don't we, hey, Kyle, why don't we just give folks a quick background on ourselves just so they know who we are, and then we'll jump into this thing. So what's your what's your snapshot? Uh, my snapshot, uh, man, I really like working on complex problems and, and helping people save a lot of tax. I was one of the managing directors here. I really focus on client plans and, and put them in a better spot. How about yeah. you, Roby? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, spent first half of my career in kind of a corporate finance arena, helping solve what I'll call complex corporate finance problems. And then for the last 15 years or so, working with uh, high net worth, ultra high net worth clients, helping them to uh, substantially save on their tax bills. Basically, uh, it's what we do around this place. And so that's what I work on uh, on a day to day basis. So fantastic. So um so yeah, so let's let's jump into this thing, Kyle. So uh, I just like why are we why are we why do we even do these podcasts? Why are we why do we try to have these conversations with folks? We are of the opinion that there is an abundance of people that need this type of planning, and we didn't learn this stuff overnight. We were benefactors of working with highly skilled professionals over the last. 10, 15 years where we got to be uh, run side by side with these professionals and learn some of these strategies. And since then, we've taken the wheel and, and we dive deep in these things. But this is really an opportunity to get back to the community and say, hey, look, this is what we've learned. These are best practices for us. And I think as professionals and clients, it's about information and it's out there. It's just hard to get to. So we're just making it available for everybody. Yeah, makes perfect sense. So uh, cool. Well, let's let's jump into this thing, and I'll just maybe I'll kind of kick us off here. So we're like, why are we talking about ink trust? Like, really, like, what's the issue? I mentioned earlier that this is a strategy that's really focused on state income taxes. So you know, so the question is kind of, is that really that big of a deal? And the answer is, yeah, it really is. You think about the way that our federalist system works. You've got 50 states in the District of Columbia that all have different ideas on what tax policy should look like. And it's kind of cool. That means you get 50 different experiments to see what works, what doesn't work. What that means is we've got 
lots of different tax rates, everywhere from zero on the low end, and that exists in multiple states, all the way up to kind of the highest one, 13.3% in the state of California. And so knowing that there's this wide disparity of of, uh, tax rates by state, it gives you an opportunity to think about, well, gosh, is there something I could do to maybe get a look, get the advantage of a lower tax rate in a different state, but maybe I'm not all that interested in moving. So we're going to, that's why we want to talk about this is there, there's this opportunity to do a bit of a kind of an arbitrage potentially by moving your assets uh, to a different state, but not moving yourself. So that's, that's kind of the focus here. Yeah. We refer that as uh, moving your assets, not your ass, I think is what we call that. Right <laughs> Indeed, yeah. So, he, Robbie, you hit a point there, right? It's um, specifically to this podcast, we're not talking about the federal taxation tax savings. We're talking about state income tax savings. So what states have the highest tax rates and like who's this most applicable to? Yeah, so you, you have multiple states that have high tax rates. And so let's just think about some of those. You've got the state of Hawaii, you've got Oregon, Massachusetts, New Jersey. All of them are north of 10%. You have some other California. states. California, don't forget yeah. about us. California is in a very high tax state, 13.3%. Uh, we're going to come back to them as a special case here throughout the podcast. But yeah, so you have several states that have those high tax rates. So what do, what, what do I you know, I have this high tax rate. How do I plan for it? And like, uh, what's been, what's available to me today to do any tax planning other than yeah. like, what are the common yeah. things that most people do? Yeah. So before you start talking about complex things like trust, you know, people talk about things like, well, couldn't, couldn't I just move? Right. And so, and the answer is, well, yeah, you can, but number one, people don't really want to do that. Like they're, you know, they've got kids in school and all those sorts of things. They're not that excited about moving. And then even if you decide to move, States are pretty uh, militant about trying to make sure they still have a tie to your dollars if you don't actually leave the state. There was a famous case in the state of California, baseball player from uh, years ago, 60s, 70s, 80s, Joe Morgan, who a lot of people may recognize that name. He was uh, born and raised in the state of California, went and ran his baseball career and, you know, was in Cincinnati and Houston and other places. But he was always coming back to the state of California in the offseason. He was filing tax returns with his CPA that said, hey, I'm not a California resident at this point. State of California said, we disagree, assessed the tax bill. Joe appealed and he lost. So he had to pay a bunch of back taxes. And and that's really been sort of a seminal case that lots of folks point to that if you're going to leave, you better leave for good. Uh, You don't want any connections back to the state. So moving is difficult. Uh, That's one thing you can think about. Second thing, people may be familiar with this idea of the pass-through entity strategy, we're not going to talk about that in any detail that today, but that's a strategy where if you own a business and because uh, of what happened with the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of 2017, you lost the ability to deduct your state taxes on the federal tax return. People came up with this workaround called the PTE workaround, but that only works for the operating income of your business. It doesn't work for things like trying to sell your business. And so that's just not going to work for kind of what we're talking about today. But that's another thing that that, that you could think about. Um, another thing that sometimes people do is just say, well, I'll just I'll pay the tax. And we don't have any interest in talking about that because, uh, you know, that's not a great outcome. So that brings us back to let's talk about things like things so so roby so the the pass-through entity pass-through uh the peak election is really for operating businesses so what does qualify when we're talking about the strategy what are we talking about like i'm listening to this podcast 
what's going to be applicable to me? Yeah. So this is a strategy that's really going to work primarily. I would describe it as highly appreciated assets, and that can cut across multiple categories. So let's think about, like if we think about our clients, one of the primary examples would be folks that own businesses, and that may be starting to think about selling those businesses. So that's a highly appreciated asset. It often has a zero or very low cost basis. So the gain is very large. That's a perfect kind of an asset. And specifically, when it comes to a business sale, we're talking about equity sales, not asset sales, even though there are some workarounds are with asset sales. Equity sales are primarily the thing. But then if we move past business sales, think about other highly appreciated assets. You could be talking about just a uh, an income generating portfolio for somebody that's very wealthy and that doesn't need the income. That's a kind of an asset that could work well in this case. And then other highly appreciated assets. Maybe you've got uh, a large concentrated stock position. Maybe you were lucky enough to buy Tesla 10 or 12 years ago. It's done really well. Maybe you bought some crypto 10 years ago. It's done really well. Other intangible assets in, in that sort of same classification. Basically, anything in what I'd call the capital gain category uh, that's highly appreciated would be a great kind of an asset for an in trust. What about RSUs? Yeah. What about restricted stock units and uh, yeah. Would that work? Yeah. So that, that question comes up all the time. The short answer is not really. So anything in kind of the ordinary income tax category, so W-2 income, a part of which uh, like restricted stock units fits in there, typically options fits in that sort of a category, that really will not work inside of an in trust uh, for legal reasons that we won't get into, but that doesn't work particularly well. So really anything in that what I call ordinary income categories, compensation, operating income from your business, not going to work well here. Any income yep. derived from other assets that you've got, you know, uh, that are domiciled in your home state. So like rental assets, things like that are not going to work well. Okay. So you have my attention. I have, let's just call it concentrated stock or a business sale that I'm anticipating. And I'm in one of these high tax states and I made the comment, you move your assets what what does that mean and where do i move the assets to what is what what's that mean yeah so let's just let's talk really fundamentally about what what we're talking about doing here so you're going to not pick up yourself and move you're going to pick up these assets and move them and so uh, again we talked briefly about what those assets might look like highly appreciated capital gain kind of assets you're going to pick those up you're going to put them inside of a structure in a state that has what's known as a self-settled asset protection statute. And what that essentially means is that the grantor of the trust or the settler of the trust can also be a beneficiary of the trust and there has to be creditor protection of the assets. So there are several of those states. We're looking for those states that have a zero tax rate on trust specifically. And so there are a handful of those states. There are really five that, that kind of stand out and we spend most of our time dealing in those states where that's where we're trying to move these assets. And those states are South Dakota, Wyoming, Nevada, Alaska, and Delaware. Delaware's falling a little out of favor because of some unique things that happen in that state. But, uh, but those are the five states we're typically talking, moving those assets to. So oftentimes people will hear the term NING, right? And that's a Nevada incomplete non-grantor trust. Or right. they'll hear WING, which is a Wyoming incomplete guarantor trust. So let's just, let me circle back on this real fast. So I want to make sure everyone gets it. You have some asset 
you're not physically moving it. You're probably re-registering it from a title perspective into the name of a trust that's domiciled in one of these zero tax states. And then you're, and then at that point, Roby, are we transacting the sale in that state so that the transaction happens there? And that's why we don't pay the income tax. Yeah. Yeah. That's so that that's a great point, Kyle. So you do, you've got to get the sequence of events, right? So you're going to build the trust in the zero tax state that qualifies. You're then going to repaper the asset inside of that trust in that zero tax trust state. Once that has landed and settled, the trustee of the trust at that point is going to sell the asset. And because that asset then is considered uh, completely domiciled within that state, that's what allows the sale to escape any state taxation from your home state. And because the state that it's in has a zero tax rate, you're then not going to pay any taxes on that state. And then once you've completed the sale, those dollars can be reinvested in that point in any number of ways. That is a very uh, thorough and articulate way to explain that. I appreciate that. So that sounds awesome. So I'm a math guy, so I can do math pretty quick. The numbers add up pretty quickly, but give me an example of you know, what kind of dollars are we talking about? You know, is this good for somebody with a hundred grand? Is this like a $10 million transaction? Where, where's the sweet yeah. spot and how much money am I going to save? Yeah, no, great question. And so let's just take a quick example. We'll keep the math really, really simple. So let's, let's assume that you've got a client that they're in the state of Hawaii. They they own a nice business that they built over time. And that thing's worth about $40 million of the top tax rate in the state of Hawaii is 11%. So if, that business owners didn't do anything and said, I'll just sell it and live with a tax consequence. They would be facing the 11% tax, roughly 11% on the $40 million sale. And we're assuming here that there was no cost basis in that business. So that's $4.4 million in state income taxes on the line. If instead that Hawaii business owner said, well, let me form uh, one of these ing trusts, and let's say I do it in the state of South Dakota, could be any of the five states we talked about, but let's say it's South Dakota, in, in forming that South Dakota ing trust, placing that asset in that trust, and then allowing the sale to happen after it's in that trust, they're going to completely escape that $4.4 million of state income tax. Pretty cool. But think about then the back end of that. Once those dollars are in that trust and all of the dollars land there once, once you've completed, you can then reinvest those assets and that can go into a diversified por- portfolio of equities. You could go into private equity, private real estate. You can go to any number of things that you want to go into. Whatever uh, income gets generated from that portfolio on an ongoing basis, because it continues to ri- reside in the 0% uh, tax state for trusts, you're going to continue to see no tax bill over time. So let's assume that that $40 million after federal tax, because you're not going to escape federal tax with a strategy, it's just a state tax strategy. You're probably going to land with $25, 26000000 million. Let's call it $25 million. And let's assume that you otherwise would have been paying an 11% tax on the income that was being generated on a yearly basis. That's probably going to save you another $200,000 a year in income taxes on an ongoing basis. So pretty quickly, you get to numbers that are in the five, six, eight, $10 million savings. And then that compounds over time. 
So your net worth could really go up by, you know, easily eight figure sort of sums with not even a really substantial amount of money to start. Uh, now, there are costs to the transaction. So clearly you want to be thinking in terms of it's probably going to cost me fifty dollars to $100,000 with my professionals to get this set up. So you don't want to do it with a $100,000 transaction. But certainly by the time you get to $5 million plus, it's well worth considering this strategy. You're going to get a significant IRR on this thing. Yeah, thanks for that context. So sounds pretty, pretty sizable savings if you're the right candidate and you have the right transaction. And based on the first... 10 minutes of this conversation doesn't sound that hard. Like, Hey, I've got this, right? Like you made it sound pretty easy, Roby. And I think our job here is to make things simple, but it's not necessarily that simple of a transaction. Is it? It is not. There's, there are several things that, um, that you really need to know as, as you set up the transaction. So it's probably, uh, Probably a good thing to know that, look, you really have to thread the needle here. And so I, I would maybe point out a couple of things here. So the critical things that you have have to sort of keep in mind here is that you're going to have to kind of balance a giving up a certain amount of control in order to meet uh, requirements of the revenue code around grant or non-grant or trust. And at the same time, retain enough control such that you're not considered to have completed a gift under federal estate and gift tax legislation. So, you know, vital sort of thing to know is that you want to be working with the right professionals here. There really is a kind of a threading of the needle that happens here. So, you know, can, can, I, can I dissect the name real fast? Because you hit upon something there that listeners may be asking themselves based sure. on what you just said. So in you touched upon two things, the gifting piece, the incomplete or gift or completed gift, and then you got grant or non-grant or trust. And the name of the, the transaction or the trust is called an incomplete non-grantor trust. And so there's two components to that. And what Roby was talking about was you have to give up control and keep control to, to, to make the criteria match that description of an incomplete and a non-grantor trust. And those are two different parts to the, to the trust. And the first one, the incomplete is, hey, if you got a $40 million transaction, you don't want to make a $40 million gift because you got a bunch of gift. You would have gift tax exposure and it would be very difficult. And you wouldn't like it. So you don't want it to be a completed gift. And so there's some rules around how to not make it an, a completed gift, hence the name incomplete. And then from a grantor, non-grantor trust standpoint, you want it to be non-grantor trust, which means you have to give up enough control so that the taxation doesn't flow back to you who didn't move. Right in this tra in this transaction, and what we're talking about is you don't move, and if by definition, if it's uh, I don't want to get too far into it, but if it's a grantor trust, the tax implications come back to you in the home state that you live in, and would negate kind of the the transaction in general. So you want it right. to be that you want that entity to be trust as its own entity in that state, and so I think that just ties it together. Right? Hey, what's an incomplete non-grantor trust? It's this gift component. I don't want to make a completed gift. And the non-grantor is, hey, I want it to be taxed in that jurisdiction and I don't want it to come back to me. 
Yeah. Well said. And, you know, I, I probably should kind of turn this around a little bit because obviously you and I both work on these transactions and, and you've done probably more of them than, than I've worked on. So let's just kind of let's dive a, a little bit into a few of the details. And I, I just want to ask you a few questions because I know this is an area that you uh, you've kind of geeked out on over time. And and uh, I think it's worth just kind of talking a little bit more about a few of the details. So, you know, you really do. You have to thread the needle here. You have to get this thing just right. So, look, there's there's lots of stuff I know that we lean on to figure out how to do this stuff. But is there, you know, particular kind of code section or other things that we really focus on here that we really lean on to get this stuff right? Like what, you know, what what's that yeah. stuff? Yeah. So so I would when we say thread the needle, I want listeners to be clear. Hey, this transaction's been done. I don't know, I couldn't even count thousands and thousands of times. People have done it for the last 20 years. So when you say thread the needle, while it is getting the drafting and the mechanics of the trust correct to meet certain IRS criteria, it's been done a lot. So don't take that as, hey, this is something that, you know, isn't isn't a well-beaten path, because it is. And so Fortunately, we work with really good estate planning attorneys and tax attorneys, and they know all the correct language to to meet that criteria. And to your point, to your question, Roby, is, hey, it's this grant, grantor, non-grantor trust language that you got to get right through what they call the code section 671 through 679. But you get that right, and then you got to get this completed gift piece right. And there's some ways to go around that. I'm, it's beyond the scope of this conversation to try to articulate how that happens. But you want to make sure you're working with people that are familiar with this stuff because there's lots of little traps and snares. And in particular, because we're talking about state income taxes, right? The federal government doesn't really care about this transaction, frankly, because they don't lose any revenue. So they're not going to come and look at this transaction and say, Hey, you screwed this up uh, from a gift standpoint, I guess they could, but the States, what, what the States do when it comes to, the income taxation of trusts is they generally adhere to federal tax rules. So you have to draft it from a federal tax rule perspective. And then the states adhere to that, but the feds don't really care because they don't lose any money. It's just the states that are going to lose out on the income tax. So right. you have to draft it right. And then there's lot every state, because there are state rules around these things, each state has different approaches to try to uh, to, to try to tax these entities. And for instance, and, and there's a whole slew of them and you got to work with the right team to know them all and, and to navigate it. It's just if you get the right team, it's not that hard, but like you could say, Hey, what if I put my trustee in California? Well, California would say, Hey, if the trustee's located in California, then we're going to tax it. So it wouldn't work in that regard. California has got its own thing going on right now. We're going to talk about that, but just as an example, like there's just some nuance there that you got to be familiar with. It's not, you just have to know it. That's all. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. And I like, I think this is the thing that's maybe most useful for people to understand is that, you know, the, the there's this thought sometimes that, well, Iris code is black and white. And the reality is this, there's lots and lots and lots of code section. And many times those things contradict each other. They create confusing sorts of interpretations. And so it's not merely a matter of a straightforward application of, you know, you read one section and say, that's, this is what we're going to do. 
things like Ying Trust are you you are using this really great set of professionals, your state planning attorney, your CPA, uh, using advisors like ourselves to navigate through not only the code section, but the interpretations of the code section, the judicial interpretations, the private letter rulings. And if you craft these documents in very narrow ways, you can sort of weave together multiple sections of the code to accomplish the thing that you want to accomplish, which is which is why you need somebody to help guide you through that process. So so let's say I want to just kind of touch briefly on this idea. I know within the Ing Trust, there's this idea of the power of appointment committee when it comes time to distribute assets. Can you just touch on that briefly? What's that all about? What do those folks do? So unlike a normal trust, like your revocable trust, where you have a grantor who creates it, you have a trustee who controls it, and then you have a beneficiary, there are two extra people on the cast of characters with a trust, particularly an ink trust. And one of them is what you just referred to as the power of appointment committee, the distribution committee. And that the rules around how you draft it are specific to this transaction. We're not going to go into the detail of that, but that is one of the keys to this whole transaction is this power of appointment committee. The power of appointment committee basically controls how the distributions of the trust work. And there's three different ways you can do it. We can, you know, we got a whole webinar, we can go super down in the weeds on all this stuff, totally invite you to join that. But that power of appointment committee is something you got to take into consideration. Uh, you got to name some people that are going to control distributions from this trust. So there's, you know, you got to have some relationships you trust in. Um, we haven't run across the situation where that really hasn't been applicable, but it, I guess it could be for somebody that, you know, maybe doesn't like some of the people in their family. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. So let's go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, we need to, um, in the essence of time, and and I think the, the I think we communicated, hey, what's the value of this thing? And 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 conceptually, what we're doing is putting this trust together. We're putting redomiciling assets in the state and we're selling it, right? But now you have assets in the state. And, you know, there's two questions I want to get to before we get to California, Roby, just to, to tie it up here is one is uh, what could go wrong with this transaction? And two, how do I get the money out of the trust? Because if I still live in one of those high income tax state, yeah. if I still live there and I pull the money back out of the trust, well, then you end up getting taxed. So you got to be careful about that. So how do you get your money back out of this thing? Yeah. So, you know, so there's sort of two possible paths. One is you could say, well, I'm just going to, you know, for whatever reason, I'm going to go back and say, I'm going to live with the tax. So you could just take a straight up distribution and live yep. with the fact that it comes back to your home state and pay the tax. We don't think that's a very good idea, but it's certainly a possibility. Could, it could be at a lower tax rate, though. It right. could be a small I, I, distribution. So yeah, you could, could have happen. some you could have some things yeah. going on where it could make sense. But generally sure. speaking, I agree with you. Where yeah. The second sort of more broad bucket is, you know, like, well, what can I do to really significantly mitigate? And one is, so, well, hey, if if the idea is you could sit on that money for a number of years until such time as you really are actually ready to physically move yourself, right? So maybe when you set the thing up, hey, the kids are in school, my business is still kind of moving along or whatever the issue is, I didn't want to move. Well, maybe five, eight, 10 years later, you're willing to move. Well, move to a zero tax state, take a distribution, and you very likely could get money out and, and pay a zero tax rate. That's one thing. Number two is we actually think there's a path to uh, to do loans out of the trust. 
And if you navigate that correctly, and again, this is you know beyond the scope of what we want to get into today, but we think you could use loans to actually get money out and still bypass uh, the state income taxes. And then there's another option where you could actually create an S-Corp with an ESBT election and making distributions through that functionality could also enable you to uh, to avoid some or all of the state income tax. So, so there are a handful of things that you can do here to, to actually get that money back out and spend it eventually, which we think probably most clients are interested in doing. So I think that that maybe that tackled the, the first question, you know, kind of the what's yep. that? Yes, another question, but just say hey, so great. What can go wrong with this thing? And uh, yeah, there's look, there's a handful of stuff, right? So the the number one thing that we see is bad drafting, right? So you gotta make sure you have the right attorney involved here that gets the drafting right. Cause you really are Keep using the term, but you are threading the needle here between multiple code sections. Got to get it right. Number you want two experience. Is, yeah, you want yeah, experience you, on this. Yeah, not a not a garage band. You, you get what here. you pay for on this one. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. Second thing is uh, you got to watch out for the step transaction doctrine. So you don't want to kind of move things through so quickly that the IRS simply just looks through it all and says, look, this was all sort of a ruse to, to get to the end state you wanted. There's got to be some distance between multiple elements of, of or multiple parts of the process. And we walk folks through that to get that right. Number three, this is always an issue with any strategy. What if the assets don't perform? You put these assets out there. You thought that you were going to get a big sale. Well, what if that big sale never happens? Well, in that case, really, you're just out the setup costs, but still, that's something that could go wrong here. Four, you could have a rogue power of appointment committee. So you're putting a lot of power in the hands of people that are required to participate in the process of ultimately getting money to you down the road. Well, if they act count too counter to your interests, that could be a problem. There are ways that we deal with that to kind of protect you there. Five, you could have changes to state tax law. That's always an issue with any strategy. So we, you kind of have to stay on top of it, make sure you address that. And then, and then the other big thing that comes up is that what if the client says, I don't need any of this money for a while. And then six months into this thing, ah, I was wrong. I need the money. That can be a real problem. So you really want to make your client, make sure your client is wealthy enough, meaning they got some money on the side so they can keep living their life without having to dip into this thing for a while. So those are kind of the big things that we see that could go wrong. We we just uncovered a whole bunch of stuff. And what ultimately transpires here is, is somebody comes to us with uh, the idea that they want to liquidate exit something that's going to cause a bunch of tax. And then we start talking about different tax strategies. We have way more tax strategies than this, this, just this one. But if this one rises to the top as one that uh, most applies, then the consulting process is talking through all of these things to make sure it meets all of your goals, that we are comfortable with everything, that you don't have this bad set of people as your power of appointment committee, whatever it is, What's the right number of assets to put in there? What are the right assets to put in there? What's the right state, right? All of that stuff, while it, it, it is complicated, we'll make it easy and get it to a point where it's not, you know, there's a couple of criteria that you really need to get focused in on and dialed in. But in general, you know, most of the really difficult stuff's on the attorneys drafting it and they do it all the time. So it's not, you know, it's, it's not going to be, the client's issue at all. It's just going to be, how do you design it? How do you spend the time? Who are the relationships? Who are the trustees? And and that's what we help our clients with to get them to a really good spot. Yeah, that's yeah, exactly right. It's like, 
you want when you, when you think about what it is we do and how we help clients, you want this complexity in the tax code because what that does is it creates what what people sometimes refer to as loopholes. They're not loopholes. They're just planning opportunities, right? There's this yeah. gigantic mess of the yep. tax code. You need people that have read through it, that have, have experience crafting these sorts of things, and they're able to navigate their way through that complexity. And then for purposes of the client, present to them in a very simple way, these are the steps we're going to take to create the thing that's going to meet your specific objectives. And having done this for a long time, it's different every single time. The broad strokes are very similar, but the you know the actual pieces you put in place, there's always little subtle differences that you got to get right so that client specific objectives are met. And so that's what we love doing. And that's, uh, and that's what we do with the ink strategy here, in addition to all the other strategies. Hey Roby, we got we got to tie some stuff together here in short order. So, if people can, if people are listening to this in the back of their mind, they may be like, "Well, what if California doesn't like that? What if you know what states don't necessarily like this? What has transpired because there is some recent legislation, SB one thirty one in California. Like, do states like this, and what are they doing to eliminate it?" Yeah, so a couple of states uh, have already taken action. A few others are looking at it and thinking about it. But specifically in the state of New York in 2014, the state of New York simply said, yeah, you can't do an ink trust. If you do it, we're going to consider it a grantor trust. And therefore, it's basically pointless at that point. We need it to be a non-grantor trust for this to work. And then the state of California followed suit just in July of this year with Senate Bill 131, uh, which they've now put in place. And again, they said, it's it's a grantor trust. Therefore, the the ing strategy doesn't work. Now, that was concerning for our clients because we look we have a lot of clients in the state of California. It's where one of the largest opportunities is. Here's the good news: there's a strategy that has been in place uh, really since New York passed their legislation in 2014. It's being revived now again with what's going on in the state of California. So, beyond the scope of this uh, this discussion to really go too deep into the details, but we do think there's a uh, a very good application of an inter vivos Q-tip trust. It's a qualified terminable interest property trust that enables us to accomplish probably 75% of what we would accomplish with the ING trust. So anybody that's sort of mid-transaction or thinking about doing the transaction in California, while we cannot do an ING, we can do another strategy that accomplishes a significant portion of that. And so, again, we would encourage people, give us a call. Let us talk to you about that. We think there's uh, not only that strategy, but other possibilities that, uh, you know, we're running to ground right now. And uh, we have no doubt that we're going to have success with that as well. Yeah, I would say that since July, the network of people we work with have all been quickly getting up to speed with what New York's done. Um, thinking about different ways to navigate this. There's going to be new planning opportunities that come out, you know, work with a team that, that is got their, got their ear to the ground on this type of thing, because I talk to attorneys and a lot of them will be like, Oh, it's dead. I'm like, well, have you thought about this? And they're like, Oh yeah, no, I haven't oh, yeah. That. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> right. And so that's the trick, right. Is being with the people that are constantly asking of other professionals. Hey, what ideas do you got? And how are you going to go about this? Could we do this? Could we do that? And then ultimately, you know, some really smart guys are going to figure out some ways around some stuff. Uh, And to Roby's point, we we got an idea for people out there that did it, that maybe hadn't sold or in mid transaction that we should probably have a conversation with and then see if it makes sense. Right. And it's always fact circumstances. 
and goals, right? It's it's always going to be specific to your situation. The strategy is not one shoe fits all by any means. It's specific, but that's what we do around here is tailored custom strategies yeah. for clients. And, and we like doing it. Fantastic. Yeah, we should probably wrap up here. Uh, folks will get tired of hearing our voice, but uh, I've got to tell you, anybody that's listening, we would love to talk with you. If you have a situation that's like this, that you think an interest might apply to you, would love to talk to you. You can call us at any point, 858-771-9500, or go to our website, centurawealth.com. We have podcasts, webinars, other material out there that just would enable you to kind of further learn what we do and the kinds of strategies that we try to deploy. And uh, we'd just love to have a chat with you and see if we can be helpful in your situation. So thanks for being here, Kyle. Loved having the chat and uh, just appreciate you, my friend. Yeah, thanks, Roby. So one thing that uh, if you went to the webpage, you would see that uh, there's an educational presentation that we put on on this where we get deeper into the weeds. So if you have any interest in that, you can find that on the webpage and sign up for that webinar. And I think it's the third, what is it, the third Wednesday of every month? Something like that. that is correct. We are doing that every month. So we'd love to have you join us. It sounds like the website is a wealth of information. Yes, indeed. All right, Kyle. All right, Roby. Thank you so much. And thank you for joining us today. Please like, follow, and share this podcast with your friends. Until next time, I'm Wendy McConnell. Thank you for listening to the Live Life Liberated podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Centura Wealth Advisory. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Centura Wealth Advisory, Centura, is an SEC-registered investment advisor with its principal place of business in San Diego, California. Centura and its representatives are in compliance with the current registration and notice filing requirements imposed on SEC-registered investment advisors, in which Centura maintains clients. Centura may only transact business in those states in which it is notice filed or qualifies for an exemption or exclusion from notice filing requirements. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Tax relief varies based on client circumstances and all clients do not achieve the same results.